0: Romans eight. There's a, an outline of what we've gone through in Romans so far. Uh, there, we don't have time to go through it today. We have a lot to get through. Um, two whole verses. I mean, so how will we? How will we manage? Uh, there are the tools of sanctification. We saw that chapter eight. We got to it. Right. Chapter seven ends with this problem of. Uh, You know, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. And then there's this idea of the praising of Christ, that he causes us to be freed from guilt, but also from the power of sin. And so we overcome sin in the body. And so we're able to cause our members to become instruments of righteousness, that we we do good. And that is by pursuing the knowledge of God and seeking to apply it increasingly. And so we moved into chapter 8, which has all of these tools of sanctification. And I've been listing them out. We've gotten through 14 of them so far. It's a pretty jam-packed chapter with tools to help us to grow in holiness. So we're going to pick up at the uh, part in in Romans 8 where there's kind of this discussion of the problem of suffering. right? How do we keep pushing through even though there's suffering? So verses 16 to 18 of Romans 8 say the following. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, that glory that shall be revealed in us is pointing to the Day of Judgment and the idea of the separation of the sheep and the goats. But also, we have the reality that as we grow in the knowledge of God, there's an increasing awareness of the truth. So it's revealed in us in the sense that sanctification is us being illuminated progressively. Bit by bit, we have new propositions of truth that we become aware of. And additionally, in this life itself, as we grow in sanctification, we display the glory of God by doing what he has commanded. And we do that individually and corporately. So there's this revealing of this glory. And so that's in us, and it's in us in the sense of us doing it, and it's the day of judgment. So all of that. And so there's this allusion to all of those things. So we get to verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So we have this chain. The last sermon was titled The Golden Chain. This one is titled The Golden Chain. I was trying to save my energy for like the 20 pages I gave you. So we're talking about the same subject matter. This is that golden chain. We are considering the fact that there are links together of the glorious salvation that we have in Christ. And so let's continue on here. We have verse 28. We spent our time on that last time. And it says, and we know that all things work together for good for to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so I wanted to leave you with a simple tag, which would be easy to remember. To theological superlapsarianism. This is the idea here, okay, and this is a this is a historical theological term. So this is a term that's valuable to know. Because we need to understand that God works things with a telos in mind. He has ends in mind. He's not irrational. He's rational. He counts the cost before he builds towers. He counts the cost before he builds the world. He knew, he planned that evil would enter the world. And he did that in order to display his justice and his mercy. And so we think about the telos, the goal God had to glorify himself. And that includes the displaying of those attributes. And we have to realize... At the fall, which in Latin is the lapse, right? I've lapsed, I've fallen, right? So, supra-lapsarianism is the idea that the, the fall, um, the, the fall is, is something that is a tool to bring about the goal of glorifying God, of showing his justice and his mercy. And so, God planned the fall for the purpose of being able to display justice and mercy, and that means in our own lives, all of our suffering which comes from sin is brought about by the sovereign decree of God. That our suffering and our sin are used for the glory of God. And if we are saved, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have been chosen by God from eternity past, then all of those things align together and work together for our good. God is not like some excellent chef that has ingredients in you know, the refrigerator that he has to figure out how to use. The fall is not some condition imposed upon him. Instead, unlike most chefs, he can create his ingredients from nothing, at will, to have whatever he wants. And so he is not stuck with what's in the refrigerator. He is a master architect, but unlike most architects, he's not limited by what exists in the world already. He made the world so that he had the materials to accomplish what he wanted. And so he has this end in mind and he accomplishes the end. So the golden chain is a, is a tool of sanctification because we realize God's going to glorify himself and that means he's going to accomplish our good if we believe the gospel. So if we continue down and think about this, um, this tool of sanctification, there's a common objection that comes forward. And we talked about this last time. But it's important to keep it in mind. People will kind of say, well, isn't it a contradiction to say that, you know, God wills that we obey him, but he also wills that we send him, right? Does he will for us to violate his will? And so we have to remember that there's two definitions of the word will. Uh, we talk about God in his commands and God in his decrees. Remember, the command of God is the perceptive, the perceptive will of God. It's a precept that's given to us. That's what we talk about is the will, the preceptive will. And so, that, we're on page five. You can see, one, the command of God, the preceptive will. That's the will of command. So, uh, the Lord's Prayer has that, for example. You, you know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer there is that the law of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The second meaning, the decree of God, the decretive will, that's the will of good pleasure. Right? God does what he wants. Right? You hear people say, I do what I want. Well, God actually does. Right? Other people don't. God does. And so, God does what he wants, and it says in Psalm 115, verse 3, he does whatever he pleases. It doesn't say he does some of the things he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. Everything. If he wants something, he gets it. God's not frustrated. He doesn't fail to get things he wants. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. There are not desires that God fails to do. Right? So he does everything he wants, and whatever he wants, he does. Right, so that's two universal affirmative propositions. And so all the things he wants, he does. And all the things he does are things he wants. If that's the case, God causes evil, and that makes God evil. We talked about the causes last time of evil. So uh, remember, if God causes evil, then God is evil. The answer is no. God, does not, uh, God is not evil. God does cause evil, but he is not evil. And we have to realize that cause is an ambiguous term, Right? There's formal cause, effectual cause, the instrumental cause, the meritorious cause, the ultimate cause. So what are we talking about? Okay? God gives a law. That's the formal cause. It, it makes it so that sin is possible. Without the knowledge of the law, there is no sin. Okay? Okay? So it's a cause in that sense. It's not, it's not sufficient. It's not a sufficient cause, right? The law does not necessarily bring about sin, right? Because you could imagine God just making righteous people. Everybody keeps the law. Everything's great, Right? So, the effectual cause is God's decree, or God himself. He chooses what happens. He does what he pleases. So, then we think about, okay, so what's the instrumental cause? It's, it's choice. It's rational creatures choosing things. You might think, wait, 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 choice? How do we have choice if God controls everything? Okay, we'll get to that. I'm just going to put that to the side. I promise we'll get to it. There'll be more discussion. So if God causes everything, uh, there is choice still. That doesn't mean that there's a choice apart from his decree. And then the, we talk about the meritorious cause of sin. So who is responsible? Who's chargeable? Who's accountable? The creature has guilt, not God. And so that's what's being talked about a lot of the times is if God causes sin, if he causes evil in the world then you kind of say, well, doesn't that mean he's the meritorious cause? The question is really, if God's the effectual cause, if he's the powerful causer, doesn't that mean he's the meritorious cause, the guilty party? Okay? And so, that is not the case. That is conflating ideas when we make them the same. So, God is the ultimate cause of sin. He's, He's the glory his glory is the goal and so his his glory is the end towards which these things happen and events outside of us temptations tests those are not the cause Um, so those are the things we talked about so so let's continue there's another answer to this by definition god is the effectual cause of evil god is not the chargeable cause of evil that's definitionally the case we talked about how God is the definition of good. If we don't have God as a definition for good, we don't know what good is. Okay, there's not a standard of good above God, and so that cannot be used to judge God, right? Because God is the definition of good. What he does is good. He's above the law. The law is made to judge creatures, not God. God has no one to call them to give an account. Creatures have God to call them to give an account. Page 6. So, Creatures have this chain of responsibility here. There's an awareness of God. There's a standard of God's law above them. Adam represents the whole race of man. There's unbelief of truth as the root sin in man. There's awareness of breaking a standard, right? We, in our consciences, we do things that contradict themselves. And then the preached word comes into the world and magnifies our guilt. It increases our awareness, So we talked about all this last time, so I know there's a lot there to unpack, but this is what we spent our time on last time, and I can't go into detail into all of it again. So when we think about God, he defines good. He is the definition of good, and he defines good. And so we considered that the good of God is to display his own glory, and and man's good is to know God. And so we thought about on page 8 here, we talked about all of the ways in which God, the Logos, uh, is to be understood. So that's all laid out. He is the divine son. He is reason. He is the decree of God. He is the preached word, the the, the oracle of God. He is the teacher inwardly. He came incarnate. And he is the builder and beautifier of the church. So that's how God displays his glory in the earth, is the connection of all those and so we discussed the connections of those things last time. So God is both the object of good and we have a way in which there's a possession of God by creatures. So he displays himself for his own good, for his own glory and he shows himself for the good of elect angels and men. And so that's how there's a possession by knowing God. That's how creatures possess God. And so we Discussed that God works all things together for the good. And that can be broken down here. And it's important that we consider, uh, before jumping into the new material, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 is, is an important text here. It helps to kind of unveil how he works things together for the good. You may remember Genesis 50. We have Joseph. He was... Sold by his own brothers into slavery and being sold into slavery uh, his brothers sinned his brothers intended evil against him okay and we, we have no problem with saying oh yeah his brothers intended evil okay and well how did they intend evil they intended evil because they intended to enslave him and to use his slavery to bring about his harm so we, we get the fact that they intended to enslave him, and they intended it for his harm. A lot of times we approach the idea that God works all things together for good as though he's a chef with a refrigerator full of stuff to deal with, or as though he's an architect with a bunch of materials, he's got to figure out how to make into a building, right? And so this idea that he's kind of stuck with a bunch of conditions and figures it out, how to put it together, and we all go, wow! It was really good, considering all you had was like a meringue and salt, right? So, that's not the case. Verse, chapter, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It is the enslaving. God meant for me, Joseph, to be enslaved... By you guys, my brothers, for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day, right? God has the goal of accomplishing things in history. And it's not just the very end. It's actually the steps along the way as well. God intends to bring about particular story steps. He has plot points he's hitting. And those plot points are called every single moment ever. They're all a part of the plot. God is not a writer of stories with fluff. He's not Charles Dickens. He does not get paid by the word. God is hyper-efficient. He has a great economy of word and economy of force. He does things in a way that is very efficient. He is all-wise. He's not a bad engineer. There aren't extra parts. There aren't extraneous pieces. Why did you add that to the car? It's just going to be something else to break. right? That's not God. God has a purpose for every little thing. The thing you're thinking about right now? Yes, that. That thing. Everything. In order to bring it about as it is this day. To save many people alive. Right? So he saved Joseph from continuing to be in his happy home and sent him into slavery. For the purpose of glorifying himself and saving people so that the church would be preserved, so that the church could be enslaved in Egypt, so that he could then save them out of Egypt, so he could send them to conquer the promised land. And you keep going. Right, so you intended your sin of selling me into slavery for evil. God intended your sin of selling me into slavery for good. The difference is not did God intend the sin and did the brothers intend the sin. The difference is what did they intend it for. God works all things together for his glory. God works all things together so that his glory will be shown and known. Creation is a theater. History is a show. And both are designed to display God's glory to those who know God's glory. Until your eyes are opened, you don't see it. God controls and intends all things, including suffering, including sin, for the good of those who were made to be knowers of God. God plans, intends, and controls all things, including suffering, including sin, for the goal of deepening the objective display of His glory and deepening the subjective knowledge of those who were made to be knowers of God. So verse 29. That was last time. That was very efficient, I thought. All right, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Foreknew. This is the verse where a lot of the action happens. A lot of the action happens here. People who don't like the sovereignty of God set up camp. They fortify the corner, and they try to go after this, as though the word predestined weren't immediately after That's fine. We can give them ground and sun and wind and we can win. This word is plenty plain. So let's fight here. To foreknow, proegno is the Greek. Pro means before. The egno has to do with to know, Uh, it's related to the word gnosis. So God foreknows. It's to know before. Everybody knows what that means? Nobody really has a problem with this. There are, however, elaborate efforts to twist this word into meaning essentially nothing. Let's consider those elaborate efforts and marvel at the craftsmanship of men. So let's consider the, the true view, and then we would compare it, because the best way to deal with counterfeits is to put them side by side with real dollars. Active foreknowledge. This is the true view. This is the view that the Bible teaches. God is not a passive observer of things. He doesn't look and discover. He knows unchangingly. Right? He is the all-knowing God. That means he didn't learn. Right? He is the eternal God. He's outside of time. Time is change. God is not changeable. Malachi 3.6 through most of verse 7, I'll quote it to you. For I am the Lord, I do not change. And it's pretty clear. I am the Lord, I do not change. This is not a poem. This is literal language. I am the Lord. I do not change. Now look at the conclusion that follows. Therefore you are not consumed. Okay, Think about the point of the text we're reading in Romans. Right, The idea that God's affections towards us don't change. Right? Everyone whom He foreknew, He predestined. Everyone He predestined. He called. Everyone he called, he justified. Everyone he justified, he glorified. So if you're one of the ones that God has love toward, you know you're always going to be an object of the love of God. You will be ultimately saved. You're not going to lose it. Okay? That's the same point of Malachi 3, verses 6-7b. to 7b. For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you're not consumed. Right? What, 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 what's this about? Why not consume? Like, wait a second. What happened here is God just really volatile, right? It's like anger management. He's trying to get a hold of it. He doesn't want to break forth. No, it's, O oh, sons of Jacob, yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Sin. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So he's calling upon Israel as a group, national Israel, the visible church, and he's saying, Repent. And I will bring blessing on the visible body. I don't change, so my attitude of love towards you doesn't change, towards those of you who are saved, and so I'm not going to consume you. Remember in the story with, with Moses, you know, the, the people of Israel are are sinning, and God says, I'm going to just destroy them, and I'll start over with you, Moses. It's going to be great. Moses says, Don't do that. You promised you wouldn't do that. And God goes, Oh, okay. Right? And he relents. Is that because God forgot? No, it's because God is showing that and he's set Moses up to be a type to point to Christ, right? That he intercedes for us. So this is the show. In shows, you reveal things through plot points. God displays things in plot points. That's what happens in the story. God doesn't forget. God's attitudes do not change. When he uses the literal language, he explains. The stories are memorable Narratives to help us to attach the doctrine to. You have to interpret stories. The explicit and implicit from the propositional dogmatic parts of the Bible make it really easy to understand the stories. When you take the stories and try to figure out how to make Paul fit in to the interpretation you started with, that's a lot harder. So you go, God changes. How do I make Malachi three six fit with that? You don't. A and non-A don't fit together. You don't say God changes and God doesn't change. And then hope it works out. That just makes the truth a lie and it makes the system nonsense. So, God's active foreknowledge, right? God knows, not because He's looking, but God knows because He chose. God knows because He chose. He knew the end from the beginning. He knew the plot points before the beginning. He knew how to get to the end. He chose the beginning. He chose the middle. He chose the end. All of it fits together. History is a system to show the system of truth that is in the mind of God. God knows because he plans. God knows the end from the beginning because he chose the end and the beginning. He chooses the beginning in order to accomplish the end. God is eternal. He's not in time. His foreknowledge is not a succession of thoughts. He doesn't think one thing after the other. He's not just a really fast thinker. He has all truth in his mind without change. His knowledge is eternal. I do not change, therefore you are not consumed. That's the basis of our assurance. He doesn't change. Foreknowing is for choosing. God elects; he chooses. He foreknows, not as a creature, but as God. It's not a passive receiving of information; it's a knowing of outcomes by actively choosing outcomes. For God to foreknow is to forechoose. Now, you may have heard the analogy of the watcher. Right? There's a guy on a mountain. He sees a couple cars heading towards each other. And he knows they're going to crash into each other. It's a tragedy. He feels real bad about it. right? All of his oh no-ness is projecting out, trying to stop the cars from colliding into each other. He just can't do it. He screams into the darkness. The headlights head to each other. Closer and closer. They approach. They crash. And he foreknew that he didn't cause This is is the God that most evangelical churches want us to worship. The Watcher. Old man in the sky pining after things that are not. Wishing and hoping for better things. That is not the God of the Bible. That watching God is a God who has conditions imposed upon him. Probabilistic guesswork is not foreknowledge. You see two cars heading towards each other, you know they're going to hit each other. What if one of them breaks? What if one of them spills their drink or drops a burger that they're eating and they swerve off the road and hit a tree? Well, something bad happened, but the cars didn't hit each other. Just because you think you know what's going to happen, probabilistic guesswork is not foreknowledge. God is not a probabilistic guess worker. God knows. like He actually knows in the technical sense. He has knowledge. He has true justified belief about what will happen because he chooses what will happen and he is all powerful. The watcher knows in a certain sense he has a good guess the cars will crash into each other. But God makes all things from nothing. He doesn't have conditions imposed upon him. He doesn't see cards colliding and try to figure out how to fix it. He's not a powerless watcher. God upholds all things by the word of his power. If he wants to make one of the cars disappear, he could do so. God could make more cars. Two cars crashing, not enough. Let's have 50 of them. Make this thing into a derby. right? Like This thing's going to be great. God created the cars. He created the drivers. He created the road. God knew the end from the beginning. God did not learn by watching. God chose the beginning while knowing the end. God chose the end. These things show a very naive view of God. They're not thought out very well. They are an emotional attempt to avoid dealing with the problems, and they are popularized. And the problem is a man-centric view of things, where we think of man as God. We think of man as the one that everything is made for. Everything's made for God. So, to foreknow is to forechoose in the context of God. Creation is from nothing, and by creating God chooses. Uh, We can think about other problems in terms of salvation. You know, man is evil. He doesn't do anything good apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So man's not able to believe uh, apart from God causing it. So he has to choose. Uh, If we are the ones who cause our salvation, we get to boast. No longer is salvation for the glory of God is now something we can boast in. Who did Christ die for and what did that death accomplish? If Christ actually pays for the sins of his people, then there's no condemnation for all the ones he died for, right? So we talked about that last time. So your definition of the whole gospel is dramatically affected by your view of predestination. You're going to redefine terms, and you're going to undermine the whole gospel and make Jesus not into a savior, but a partial savior at best. Or you go all the way with Pelagius and say, he was just a good example. And if if he's just a good example... And he just helps us to go to hell faster. Because we already have the law that shows us that we're not good enough. His good example would just help to make that clear as well. We cannot save ourselves from our sins. We need someone to pay for our sins. And if Jesus paid for your sins, then you are saved. The accomplishment of the atonement is definite, effectual, and it's for a limited set of persons. So, God's Chapter, page 11 here. God's foreknowledge is God's foreloving. Like the love of God, the favor of God, it's God's omnipotent and unchanging desire for the good of the object. God's grace is particular. It's not common. It's not universal. God's grace is effectual. It's not ineffective. God's grace is irresistible. God's grace is unconditional, not conditional. Right, he makes the conditions. He had his attitude of grace before making anything. It meets... The conditions. The grace of God is the thing that meets the conditions. It gives the means of salvation. He gave us scriptures so that we would know the gospel. It, he gives us faith so that we believe the gospel. He sent Christ to accomplish the work of actually seeking and saving the bride, saving the lost sheep of Israel that his father gave to him. God's love is his omnipotent desire for the good of the object. He accomplishes that goal. God's not sitting there going, I wish I could save you. I wish I could do you good, but I just can't because of your own sovereign will. To foreknow is to love. And God accomplishes all of his purpose. He does all he pleases, doesn't he? And if he wants your good, he'll get it. So the contrast to this, right? That God, that God's terrifying and awesome. The watcher God the passive foreknowledge God, the God of Arminianism, Molinism, Semi Pelagianism, Pelagianism, the God of Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, that God looked down the corridors of time and he saw who would choose him. And so then he predestines them after they already destined themselves to what they chose. You see how that's man centric? So that makes man God and not God God. That was to page 12. If God's a passive knower, does he know the end from the beginning? Does he eternally know all truth, or does he learn? The problem doesn't go away just by claiming that God looks down the corridors of time. Okay, let's, pre- let's just pretend that's logically possible for a second. Here's this corridor of time that has some sort of existence somehow, apart from God choosing it. And so then, God has options in this scenario, I imagine. It's not just one quarter of time that he's like, well, I can choose to make down this quarter of time or not, right? I've never heard anybody do that. They have, like, options. They normally have some reason why he chose which one or the other this is the one that the most people would be saved in or something like that. And so you look down that, and in that scenario, he's saying, I'm going to cause all this stuff to happen, which doesn't eliminate the problem of God causing evil. That's the whole thing that people are trying to escape with free will, right? If God causes evil, then he's evil. It doesn't solve the problem. You have to go the whole way and say, God's not really God. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know. He doesn't know the end from the beginning. He's just a smart responder. Figures things out real quick. It's like multi-track processing. Maybe it's like quantum processing, right? Like a cube processor. It's going really fast. That view of God, a changeable God is now in time. He's no longer eternal. And so he's just been sitting around forever, waiting to make. How did we go through that infinite amount of time? Is it logically possible to complete an infinite amount of time? It's not. The definition of God has to have something else that's eternal. Maybe that's the real God Maybe that guy predestined everything. It doesn't solve the problems. It's like thinking through a problem just far enough to not have to worry about it for a bit. I know lots of people who do that. I've done that, right? Maybe if I play video games right now, I won't have to deal with the stress of the problem that I've got in front of me. Problem solved for a couple of hours. At the end of those couple of hours, it's worse. It's the same philosophically. If we kick the can of responsibility down the road... You know, we can kind of avoid God causing evil and then we'll figure it out later on after the video games are done. That's the philosophical equivalent. So, God knows all things. God's mind does not change. He does not learn. He knows all truth eternally, including the final thing to be accomplished in your life, in each creature's life. There's always this objection to, but God creates people for judgment? To be punished? Okay, let's just, let's, let's take it, let's make it the most personable, let's make it the most personal possible. Let's pretend for a minute, I, you could say you, let's say I was created for the purpose of being judged. Do I have an excuse? Have I placed God above all things? No. Have I ever broken his law? Yes. So, Do I have an excuse to be mad at God or to say, this is unjust? No. I deserve to go to hell. Now, if you can't say that about yourself, maybe that's the problem. You don't recognize your own guilt. If you don't get your own guilt, I could see why you would think God is unjust. So I think you should go back to Romans 1 and read through Romans 3 and consider that argument. But Once you get your own guilt, you might find the emotional objections to be easier to get rid of. Still page 12. Point 3. Does God create from nothing? Does God create without some other force external to Him? It places conditions upon him. Right? The passive foreknowledge view of God implicitly denies creation from nothing because you have these conditions where God's trying to kind of figure it out. I've right? got to create, and I've got to do it to make it so that what I want is done here, but I can't do that without there being evil, and so the angst begins in God. Right? He's roughly like a teenage emo-loving God. God does not look down the corridors of time as though those corridors have an existence independent of his own decree. God creates from nothing and governs what he creates. There is nothing in eternity to explore other than his own purpose and good pleasure. That's what he's exploring. He's exploring his own mind. <laughs> and he's not even exploring it because he knows it all. God created from nothing. So, there's this other objection. We say, "Oh, well, God loves everyone. Uh, his love does not actually bring about the good of those whom he loves. He just loves everybody. It's sort of a a puppy dog love. Dog chases a car. He doesn't know what to do when he catches it. Well, this God has a little bit better view than that. He knows what to do if he catches the person. But he still just kind of powerlessly wants people to get saved. He supposedly values something more than the good of the people he loves. And that normally is free will. So here's the reasons why free will seem to be necessary. Here are the objections. If God controls everything, we are robots. What's a robot? A robot is a material object with no soul that runs mechanistic processes, and what it does is it shuttles electrons down a processor. Those processors use on and off sequences to have complex changes in this kind of set of circuits that cause the movement of a matter, a piece of matter. This objection might make sense if we had no souls. This might make sense if we didn't choose things. But I am not asserting, the Bible does not assert, Calvinism does not assert naturalistic materialism. It does not assert that matter is all that matters. It does not assert that physical processes are what control everything. What controls everything is the decree of God. So the same sort of objection comes up with puppets. Does Calvinism make us puppets? What's a puppet? A puppet is an inanimate object controlled by strings, it has no will. I'm not asserting that the decrees of God cause us to flail around apart from our choices. Right? I'm not up here with my lips flapping and going, what am I saying? I don't want to be saying this. Right? That's not what's happening right now. I want to say this. God made me want to say this. He caused me to consider things and to have desires and to act on those desires. So I'm still a rational being. I'm still a chooser of things. The mind chooses this comes from a confusion that the will equals the free will. The will is the mind choosing. That's the definition of the will. The will is the mind choosing. According to Arminian thought or Pelagian or semi-Pelagian or libertarian free will, whatever, Mol- Molinism, whatever label the preferenced person has, it kind of reminds me of the desire for different like gendered pronouns or whatever. Just, okay, fine, whichever you want to call it, that's fine. This label, according to this view of free will, the will is not determined one way or another by anything other than itself. Think about that for a second. The claim that human will is not determined by anything other than itself. Not determined by anything other than itself. You could say, well, it's it's constrained by its own nature. It's constrained by things around it, by the time and place that it's in. Did God choose those things? Is it, is it governed by its own past thoughts? So according to this view of the will, I would posit to you that only God has a free will in this sense. He has nothing outside of himself to constrain his choices. According to the Augustinian thought or Calvinism, According to that thought, the free will is the will that is able to do good. God, all the righteous angels, all regenerate men have a free will in the Augustinian view. So these are our contrasting views of will. And oftentimes, people who try to make it so that God does not control everything, they try to find a way to define will and free will in the same way. And that often will just open their eyes by itself when they see, oh, wait a second, the will is not the same thing as the free will in that Arminian definition. So, Augustinian free will versus Arminian free will. Arminian free will is freedom from determination by God. Augustinian free will is the ability to do good. Man cannot do any good. He has no free will until he's regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The Arminian view that man is free from the determination of God, that never happens anywhere at any time. So, the next objection that comes up to this idea that God's love is particular is that love is definitionally impossible without free will. Does Calvinism make true creaturely love impossible? So think about it, have you ever heard this? You ever heard that like unless you have the freedom to choose, it's not real love? Where did this definition come from? It's not in the Bible. Love is valuing the object. Love is seeking the good of the object. That's, this definition of love is not in the Bible. You might find it in C.S. Lewis. You're not gonna find it in the Bible. The biblical definition of love is seeking the good of the object. It's doing what the law commands towards the object for creatures for us. Right? We're supposed to love God, love our neighbor. We have the law it teaches us how to love, how to seek the good of those objects. We value God above all things. You can find that stuff in the Bible, the first commandment. It said not have any of the gods before him. These definitions, you can find this in the Bible. The idea that that free will is necessary for true love often gets joined with this kind of perverse idea that Calvinism teaches divine rape, that God forces himself on the elect. These, These objections are horrific slander of the true God. God, as we talked about with the puppets and the robots objection, doesn't force people apart from their wills to love him. He doesn't save them apart from their wills. He saves them by causing them to understand and believe. So they choose him. But he causes it. You might be growing tired of me explaining the same thing. It's fairly simple. What's complex is the human accretions that have been layered on top of each other to object to this. The truth is simple and clear. What is not are the objections that are built upon false assumptions. God does not save people against their will. He causes them to want him. He causes their minds to understand and to believe, and he causes them therefore to choose God. So, okay, page 13, X, objection to Calvinism. God will be creating people for hell without seeing what people would do if given the chance or choice. Okay, if given the chance or choice they won't choose God because they have no ability to do Good apart from the Holy Spirit. God's got to cause them to do the good. God does create people for hell. What? Okay, Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made all for himself. Okay, he's made everything for a purpose. It's for his purposes, it's for him. What did he make the wicked for? The day of doom. It's plain. Objection to Calvinism. If Calvinism is true then God would be choosing to cause evil if he predestined all things without seeing what people would do. It's true. God does cause evil. We talked about the types of causes. We've disambiguated. He's the effectual cause. He's not the meritorious cause. He's not evil. There's a guy who's, uh, look at uh, Roman numeral 11, okay? On page 13. There's a guy named Leighton Flowers who's Going around, he's kind of the new Goliath against Calvinism. People are like, oh, look at this guy. He's so smart. He's got like the best objections to Calvinism. Totally unanswerable. They're infantile. Okay? He reads this verse, and here's what he says. Now, when it says foreknow, okay, when it says foreknow, it means we can look at past things that happened. Hey, get this. He's not saying, his interpretation is not that God foreknew, His interpretation is we can look back at what God did in the past and we can see what God did. Let Let me just read you the verse again. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's obviously God the actor. Okay, so uh, maybe it's God looking at what he did in the past, and that reassures us. Can you read God's mind? Like, It doesn't make any sense. When you make this into looking back at the past, The whole point is to know that all of our sufferings have purpose. They're for the purpose of fulfilling the purpose that God has. And so our good will be accomplished. The infantile readings of the Bible, the tearing apart of Scripture, the twisting of the text that has to be done in order to avoid the conclusion that God is God. That He knows all things, that He does as He pleases in the heavens and in the earth and in the water under the sea. Right? God is God. Is that a surprise? Verse 29, so we're at page 14. From whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Having talked about the word foreknowledge, which tries to you know, people try to twist it to make it to interpret the rest of it and make everything else meaningless. The word predestined is pretty clear. Pro, before, and horizon you can see it comes from the word horizon. The word horizon comes from it, right? What's a horizon? It's the end. It's the, it's the end being determined before. It's the before horizon. God before horizoned us. He chose the end, the limits for us. He set the end before the predestination of all things by God is his wise choosing of ends and the means of bringing about those ends. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We're talking about the decretive will there. God does not start construction on a tower without first counting the cost. I'm going to leave that there. The word predestined is pretty clear. It means predestined. Conformed, he predestines to cause many to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This conforming, the word conformed occurs pretty near hereafter in Romans chapter 12 in the English translation. They're not the same word in the Greek, so this is not a predestination point, this is a just an encouragement point, Okay. In one place, we know God predestines us to, be, um, to have our forms change. Right? The, the Greek word here is um, Okay, Morph, morph, form. Okay? This idea of, of the changing of forms. And later on, there's this thing that says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Okay? The word transformed there is... It's based on the the root for metamorphosis. It's uh, metamorphoste. Metamorphoste. And the idea there, there the same root, that our forms are changing. We're being changed by the word of God so that we are being renewed in the mind and our form is being changed. The other one, this, this other translation of conformed in Romans 12 to don't be conformed to this world is saying don't take on sort of the The schema the plan of the world okay and so this idea of of changing to take on the plan of the world as opposed to having the form or design that god has given you as a human being and so we are having our form changed by the power of the word and the spirit to be what we were designed to be growing from strength to strength from faith to faith and those who are following after the world are having themselves kind of meshed into this mold that's not natural. They're not growing into it. They're kind of being mushed into it. Pressed into it. Which is not particularly healthy for living creatures. You, know, you, you put a caterpillar in a mold and try to push it in real hard you get a dead caterpillar. You, you have a caterpillar that metamorphosizes, right? And it turns into a butterfly. That's the linguistic idea here we are we are being transformed by the power of god and that's what we're predestined to do and in the context this is particularly important because the point is look i'm doing evil and i'm suffering and look the suffering you're going through god's using it for your good and you will overcome your own evil because you're being transformed by the predestined power of god that's the encouragement here you're going to do it it's going to happen you will overcome the flesh so, we're predestined to be sanctified definitely through effectual calling, progressively by growing, and completely in glorification. So I have here from the Shorter Catechism, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Okay, verse 29 For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice the goal. So that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. There was a horrible, popular Christian worship song in the late 1990s and early 2000s that says that Jesus thought of me above all, and that he would have come to just save me. It's not true. He came to save many brethren. He has specific people in mind, and he's going to save all of them. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Called. We're talking about effectual calling. The calling here is not a general call of the outward form. It's not just the preaching of the word. It's the inward and effectual call of the Holy Spirit. The argument is not that some of those whom God has predestined are called and that some of those who are called are justified. It's all. This is a a golden chain. It's an effectual chain. So what's effectual calling? Effectual calling, shorter catechism, on page 15. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby, convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. That's the power of the Spirit. So what does it mean to be justified? This is a glorious question from the shorter catechism. If you don't have it memorized, you should memorize it. You will find much enjoyment in it. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. Notice the word act, how punctilious it is. A particular moment in time. Not a process. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone we talked about the causes of salvation scripture, grace, faith Christ, and the glory of God using the same things talking about formal causes effectual causes instrumental causes meritorious causes the ultimate cause but God gives the form of scripture and uses it to save us he effectually by his grace saves us He gives us faith as an instrument. He causes us not by our own merits to be saved, but by the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ we are saved. And it's for his glory. So, glorified. Being glorified is the removal of all unbelief, all sin, all corruption of nature. You are guaranteed this end. If you believe the gospel today, you are guaranteed glorification. What is glorification? Well, question 37 of the Shorter Catechism says, What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Now, that is glorious. But it doesn't stop there. Question 38, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Brethren, this is the golden chain. God works all things for the good of those who are called. All who are foreknown are predestined. All who are predestined are called. All who are called are justified. All who are justified are glorified. There's a benefit to you this, about this right now. You'll notice I skipped over question 36. Here it is right here. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification our assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. There's much cause to rejoice. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members.
1: Mr. Nye, thank you for your teaching, Hillary. I just wanted to get clarification real quick um, on. Your explanation of Latin flowers, the explanation of, of Romans um page 28, uh, in terms of what Layton means by God foregoing there. Um this is I, I think bottom of page 13 and then top of page 14. Yeah. Um, so is Layton saying, I, I'm just gonna read the quote. Uh, because we have seen how God worked all things to the good of those whom He knew before, we know that He will do the same for those who love and are called by Him now. So it's, it, it's Layton saying that that God, God did good to those people who lived before. And so because of that, experience, we, we, we can see that. So we have confidence that he's going to do good to those who love him and that Our uh, I'm not sure, he's not a Calvinist, so I'm not sure what it means by our call, but like now, like to us now.
0: Yeah, he's saying we can look back on what the people who God knew before and we can understand that if he knows us now, then we might persevere. And if we do, then...
1: So because he treated his, the Christians back in the past with love, he's going to treat Christians today with love.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah so that is, the question becomes, are you denying, Leighton Flowers, are you denying that God foreknows everything? Because it seems like you're trying to avoid the problem of foreknowledge. Right. So if God foreknows everything, are there any other texts that say that? If there are other texts that say that God foreknows everything, how about we deal with that problem then? That's fine. It's great. You know, are there any other? Do you do you just deny that God knows things before they happen, or are you just saying this particular verse doesn't say that? Right. It's always a curious thing when people take very clear verses and try to make them not teach some clear thing about God. Are you denying that? And he I think does not claim at this point. To deny the foreknowledge of God. I think if he continues down this road, he'll be pushed to denying that, or he'll be converted and be a Calvinist. So, answer your question? Yeah.
1: Thank
0: you very much. Thank you. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that you'd help us to understand these simple verses and understand the complex warfare that is brought against them. Help us to overcome false doctrine and to defend your eternal truth. We thank you that you have given to us this deposit of Scripture and that you have illuminated our minds so that we can, with reason, interpret and understand you have caused us to believe what you teach. I ask that you would uphold us in our faith. That you would give us strength. I ask that you would give us comfort to know that if you have justified us, you will uphold us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.